Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with Dr. Nadine Gracia, president and CEO of Trust for America's Health, which is out with its annual State of Obesity report. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Angela Ann covers a number of topics, including the fight over redistricting in Ohio, the fight over mask mandates in Ohio, and a segment about this being National Hispanic American Heritage Month. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Dan Skinner. He's a health policy professor at Ohio University's Dublin campus discussing the opioid epidemic. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Dr. Nadine Grazia, who is the president and CEO of the Trust for America's Health. How are you? Doing well, Dave. Thanks so much for having me on this morning. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about your uh, annual uh, state of obesity report. Uh, And uh, this comes at an interesting time, of course, as is everything because of the pandemic. Yes, that's right, Dave. Today, Trust for America's Health is is releasing our 18th annual state of obesity report uh, in which we track uh, obesity rates uh, in the the nation. Uh, And obesity continues to be a significant public health crisis. And as you noted, uh, in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, what we're seeing uh, is that obesity rates have actually worsened uh, during the pandemic. You know, when we look at many of the pandemic's impacts from the health and uh, economic impacts from uh, job loss that's caused greater economic instability for families and being less able to afford uh, healthy and nutritious food, uh, to increase food insecurity, uh, as well as the stress and anxiety and, and less access uh, to healthy school meals and opportunities for physical activity. It increases the risk factors for obesity. I remember hearing a story uh, sometime last year during the first year of the pandemic that was kind of shocking. It, it said something like, especially among millennials, that it was something like an average of, I don't know, 17 or 20 pounds or maybe even more than that, that the average had gained during that year. It was astounding. Well, we are in, in, indeed seeing uh, increasing rates as it relates to uh, to obesity. You know, nationally, more than four in 10 adults uh, have obesity. And in the data that we're releasing in today's report on state of obesity, it shows that 16 states now have adult obesity rates that are over 35%. That's four more than in 2019. Uh, And if you really look at the trends, what's even more striking is that just a little over two decades ago in in the year 2000, no state had an adult obesity level uh, rate above 25%. So truly, uh, this is an important public health issue that has to be addressed. Ohio checked in at 35.5% and 69% that are either overweight or obese. And uh, many of our neighbors, uh, neighboring states in kind of the same boat. That's right. Uh, so, and, and what we've seen in, in the state of Ohio is that that uh, rate of adult obesity has continued to increase. This is the first year in which uh, the adult obesity rate is over 35%. Uh, percent. And we also see important uh, disparities that exist uh, as well in, in communities of color with higher rates of obesity. Uh, but it's important when we, when we speak of obesity to understand that it's truly a, a complex disease, uh, that when we look at uh, what puts people at risk for obesity, uh, factors such as um, the neighborhoods in which they live and the design of neighborhoods, whether they're walkable and bikeable paths and safe places to engage in physical activity, ensuring that uh, that everyone has access to affordable, healthy foods uh, and that uh, that there's also access to um, safe places for people to engage in physical activity. These types of issues, which we refer 
refer to as social determinants, as social and economic conditions in communities, that really has an important impact on obesity. So when we think about addressing the obesity crisis, it really needs a multi-sector engagement from transportation to education, public health, healthcare, and many sectors involved uh, to address this really from a systemic level. Talking with Dr. Nadine Grazia. She's the president and CEO of the Trust for America's Health. Uh, I looked at the, the rankings uh, for obesity Indiana, among our neighboring states. Indiana's fifth, Ohio 14th, Michigan 16th, Pennsylvania 27th, and West Virginia is second. And it's interesting because Pennsylvania is 27th, but if you look at, you know, say the eastern half of Pennsylvania, that area would be less like Ohio than all those other states. It's more of a you know, you're getting on the East Coast with a metropolitan area where I guess where there's more people, maybe less obesity, especially if the poverty isn't as high. Well, you, you raise an important point. We do see some geographic differences as well with regards uh, to to rates uh, of obesity. And importantly, you noted some of those uh, economic factors that really uh, play an important role and have a large impact as it relates uh, to being able to maintain a healthy weight, whether it's looking at, for example, poverty and rates of poverty, which are a strong predictor uh, of obesity. Uh, it's also uh, assessing uh, whether people who are eligible, for example, for nutrition assistance programs, if they actually have access and are enrolled in those programs, such as the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or the Women, Infants, and Children Program, which really help to support uh, low-income individuals and families to be able uh, to access affordable, healthy, and nutritious foods. And then looking at the design of, of neighborhoods, whether they have bike paths and walking paths, whether they have access to community centers and gyms and other ways to be able to uh, engage in regular physical activities. And what we've seen is that uh, where you see communities that have less of these resources, that you see higher rates uh, of obesity. And so when, what we recommend then in the report is, is really to be able to assure that we're advancing policies and making more significant investments in evidence-based obesity prevention programs. Uh, for example, uh, currently uh, the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has a, a program uh, that uh, addresses obesity prevention called the State uh, Physical Activity and Nutrition Program that only has enough funding to support 16 states across the country. What we recommend is that Congress increase that level of funding so that all 50 states and the U.S. territories have access to programs such as those that help support state health departments and communities to be able to implement obesity prevention programs. It's so interesting because it, it's so different than what the traditional thought would be over the years is that somebody who is obese simply eats too much or eats too often, and that really isn't the, that isn't the issue. Right. You know, not everyone has an equal opportunity uh, to, to uh, access for affordable and healthy, nutritious foods or to engage in physical activity. That's really an, an important message uh, from the report that we're releasing today, the State of Obesity Report, is, is talking about those social and economic conditions. Uh, there's no clearer example than the COVID-19 pandemic to show that there are structural and systemic inequities that our nation has long faced with regards uh, to access to healthy foods, uh, to uh, having a job that pays a living wage and ensuring that families can make and meet to be able to afford those healthy foods, uh, to assure that children don't go hungry and have access to healthy foods, healthy uh, meals in schools, for example. Uh, all of those types of 
social and economic conditions, which we see disproportionately impact low-income communities, communities of color, uh, play a role in, in, uh, in increasing the risk of obesity. We also even see this, for example, uh, with regards to the marketing and advertising of unhealthy foods, where we see that uh, there have been studies that have been done that show that fast food advertising actually disproportionately is directed at youth of color, black and Latino youth in, in, in those house, households, which changes food preferences patterns and, and, and thinking about access to healthy foods. Uh, so we also need to think about um, assuring uh, that uh, businesses don't have incentives or that we close uh, tax loopholes that allow that type of targeted advertising. It's the Trust for America's Health State of Obesity Report, and joining us is the president and CEO of the organization, Dr. Nadine Gracia. Uh, where can folks find out this information? Yes, to, to access our uh, Trust for America's Health State of Obesity Report, you can visit uh, our website at tfa.org. That's T-F-A-H dot O-R-G, and you'll be able to see the data that show the trends of obesity as well as the recommendations that we put forward uh, with regards to how to address the obesity crisis in the nation. A lot of interesting information on it. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Dave. Have a great day. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and thanks for listening. Before I was adopted, I felt like nobody wanted me. I felt like my life was already over. At a certain age, they don't want you. You're troubled and stuff. Even if I wanted to be adopted, who would adopt a 17-year-old? Inside, I knew, like, I'm not a troubled kid. I know what I'm in for, why I'm here. My biggest fear was that I would age out and not know how to be sufficient on my own. I had nightmares every single day at my birth mom's house. It was just really scary for me living there. I was scared. I was lost and I felt hopeless. I felt like, don't I deserve to feel happy and loved? I just wish I'd gotten adopted sooner. Unfortunately, the number of children waiting to be adopted from foster care is on the rise. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is the only public nonprofit charity in the U.S. focused exclusively on foster care adoption. You can help. Go to DaveThomasFoundation.org to learn more. Neil Armstrong waited six hours and 39 minutes to step onto the surface of the moon. Jackie Robinson waited 20 months to play his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And even DiCaprio had to wait 22 years to win an Oscar. You can wait until your destination. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. There's a place to share the joy of your team winning it all. And a place to share a laugh about skiing and taking a fall. There's a place to share photos of pets or singing in the choir. Or the time you ate a pepper and your mouth was on fire. But we could all be better at sharing how we're feeling inside. 76% of employees have struggled with at least one issue that affected their mental health. When you share, you're not alone. 
Ask about your company's emotional health benefits. Visit heart.org slash sharing. Brought to you by the American Heart Association. When I grow up, I want to be a doctor, because that's a really important job. I would help kids get better and make everything super fun. I'd have a cool waiting room with games, toys, and a huge TV. If your child is sick over and over again, it could be PI, a serious defect of the immune system. Early testing gives children a chance to dream. And I'll give every kid a cherry lollipop, because that's the best flavor. Jeffrey Modell Foundation, helping children reach for their dreams. Visit info4pi.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Angela Ann from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. The mask mandate debate sparks responses from the people vying for Governor Mike DeWine's job. Hear where those candidates stand on the issue. And new lines are drawn. We talk with both sides of the aisle who are not happy about the outcome. And we dive into what redistricting means for you. Thanks for joining us this morning for Face the State. I'm Angela Ann. Tracy Townsend is off. Well, there's going to be a new person representing Ohio. Congressman Anthony Gonzalez announced he will not seek re-election next year. He tweeted the reason why, saying the current state of politics and the many toxic dynamics inside the Republican Party were significant factors behind his decision. Gonzalez is a former Buckeye and NFL wide receiver. He was elected in 2018 to the 16th Congressional District. That's in Northeast Ohio. Gonzalez was also one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach former President Donald Trump. And now to the big story out of the State House, Ohio's new redistricting map. Leaders were supposed to draw that district boundary map under new guidelines to make sure gerrymandering doesn't happen again. But politicians on both sides of the commission weren't completely happy with the new maps, even Governor Mike DeWine. However, in the end, DeWine and four other Republicans voted for the map, while the two Democrats of the commission voted no. Senate President Matt Huffman said the map would likely give Republicans Republicans a 62-37 advantage in the House and a 23-10 advantage in the Ohio Senate. Here's what politicians had to say about that final decision. The Democrats on this commission made it very clear that the maps that we saw yesterday were a non-starter, that we would not be supporting them, and any suggestion that we should be voting for them or that they are closer is a patently false statement. And to make the suggestion that perhaps we should vote for this because it may get us closer is just wrong. I am not going to be fooled, and neither will the people of this state. They have invested too much time and energy in this process, and they deserve better than what this map is. 
when you draw maps, sometimes you have to allocate disappointment. I will tell you there's some disappointment in my view as the way some of the counties are split in northwest Ohio. That's just the way the cookie crumbles, some would say. But the reality is, compared to some of the other maps we've had a choice to go with, this map isn't that bad. Governor Mike DeWine says he expects court challenges in response to these new legislative boundaries. And as we mentioned, the governor ultimately voted for the map, but he admits to the maps and they're not perfect. I'm not happy with, with what happened, and um, but I've learned that, uh, you know, politics is and governing is the art of the possible. And what I learned is that it was going to be impossible to get a 10-year map. The map that um, was uh, adopted by the commission um, complies with the Ohio Constitution, and um, there's a whole variety of things that must be done. Now, because the agreement was not bipartisan, this map will last for only four years instead of 10. When the redistricting news broke, I spoke with reporter Andy Chow from Ohio Public Radio's State House News Bureau. Here's his perspective on where we go from here. There's still time for the public to sort of weigh in on this. They can go to the redistricting website and click on the button that allows them to add public comment. And this is very likely to go to court to be challenged anyway. But remember, even though the state legislative districts have been drawn, this redistricting commission now has to look at the potential for congressional districts to be drawn. That's the next step. It's up to the Ohio legislature to draw those lines, but it could come down to the commission to weigh, on it, weigh in on it too. I also asked Andy about why you should care about this process as a voter. You look at these districts and you see that the lines kind of curve in. And so places like Clintonville and Beachwald get cut up. You end up having these neighborhoods where you might be right next door to your neighbor and you're voting for two different state legislators. And what happens there is that people are contending that this is not fair representation. And that's been the big selling point this whole time is that the reforms were supposed to create fair districts and equal representation. Something that's really big, somewhat one of the big arguments here is that when the Republicans drew their maps. They didn't take into consideration racial demographics and other demographical data. And in the end, people say, well, how can you really make sure that a community is represented if you're not taking that into account? Columbus City Council is also doing some redistricting of its own. Council members launched a new phase of working meetings to answer people's questions about the new lines, as well as the process for drawing the new map. Members are using new 2020 census data to come up with the districts. And you can watch it live on the City Council Facebook page. Well, three major opioid distributors signed off on a major settlement deal with the state of Ohio. Ohio's top cop, Attorney General Dave Yost, made that announcement about one-third of the $800 million settlement will now go to local communities. This will be used for treatment and prevention programs. No money goes for potholes or bureaucrats it's all going to try go to try to clean up this mess uh, that we have from the opiate epidemic. Yost also says a larger deal involving other states and plaintiffs is still up in the air, but the money could start flowing into Ohio in November. Hundreds of Afghan evacuees will soon arrive in Ohio. 855 will look to make this state their new home, at least temporarily. We do know that the city of Columbus will accept nearly 350 refugees. These placements will happen over the next six months.
We do want to turn our attention now to our children's futures. We've all heard education is key. A recent study looked at access to early childhood education, along with barriers and challenges. And it looked at children in three specific Columbus neighborhoods, the Hilltop, Linden, and Southside. The research was a collaborative effort between Ohio State and Columbus City Council. President Pro Tem Elizabeth Brown says here is one of those key findings. Our uh, enrollment in early childhood education settings lags the national average. So that means fewer kids are being prepared for the future and fewer families have that high quality environment to rely on when they work. Councilwoman Brown also says the solution, she believes, is investing more in the industry. Well, when it comes to the fight against COVID-19, leaders from the four major hospitals in Columbus sent a stark warning. Columbus is running out of hospital beds. 10 TV's Olivia Eugenio spoke with a nurse about what's happening on the front lines. It's exhausting. We think of superheroes as invincible. It's just taxing. It's very taxing. But uh, heroes like Wengi Arter are still... I, I have no words. ...human. Arter works as an ICU nurse at OSU's Wexner Medical Center. We're always full. Um, beds are filled um, as soon as, you know, we discharge someone, then that bed is, I mean, the turnaround is probably a couple hours. Arter estimates at the beginning of the summer, about five of the hospital's 48 ICU beds were filled by COVID patients. Now she says that number is 22. You're by yourself in there with this patient, with this person who has nobody around them. This is the letter the CEOs from Mount Carmel, Ohio Health, Nationwide Children's Hospital, and OSU's Wexner Medical Center, asking anyone who needs care to consult their primary care provider first. Instead of utilizing the emergency department as that first line of defense, work with your primary care provider. Oftentimes, your primary care provider can uh, utilize telehealth, so it's it's very convenient. In Franklin County Thursday morning, out of the 2,300 medical surgical beds, only 11 were open. And of the 560 ICU beds in the county, just 10 were open. This is the highest that I've ever seen. In my 13 years of working uh, with the uh, local hospitals, um, I've never seen capacity this tight uh, throughout the pandemic and beyond. Another way you can help is if you need a COVID test, but you aren't showing any symptoms, instead of going to an emergency room, go to your local pharmacy. Olivia Eugenio, 10TV News. When we hear about these necessary responses, it should raise some alarm, as none of us want our hospitals to get so busy that there isn't a bed for you in the hospital if you need it. That is Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff. He is Ohio's director of the state health department, and he says the best way to keep people out of the hospitals and to save those beds for those who need it is for everyone to get vaccinated. Right now, more than 64% of adults are uh, vaccinated, at least with the first shot. Kids 12 to 17, 62%. But when you look at all Ohioans who have received at least one shot, we are over that halfway mark at 53%. Well, the pandemic problems also point to the scale and the risk for COVID complications. Ohio ranks 14th in the nation for adults with obesity rates at 35% or higher. The group Trust for America's Health is a nonprofit, nonpartisan health policy organization. 
It came out with its annual State of Obesity Report, which looked at trends by age and ethnicity. Researchers say the report concluded an increased risk of death, as well as hospitalization, all tied to obesity. There tends to be a number of factors that are tied to that. Uh, of course, your immune system, your ability to f fight off and fend infections, mm -hmm. inflammation levels, uh, also looking at your heart health or cardiovascular health. COVID-19 has really magnified a lot of issues we have already known about, a lot of policy-related issues related to access to healthy foods, nutrition, physical activity, uh, living wage, benefits, all of these things that impact our ability to live our best lives. So uh, some system-wide changes can be really, really impactful versus looking at more of individual level interventions, which we know um, a lot of times when you talk about obesity and poor health, there tends to be a blame or a shift on someone's consumption or lack of activity, but there is a, a point to make, who, what do people have access to in their neighborhoods? Not everyone has a car, not everyone has uh, the means to be able to uh, shop and purchase organic, uh, fresh foods, fruits and vegetables. So uh, we want to acknowledge that. We want to make sure people have access to these things and that they know what is healthy. We assume everyone knows what this means, but it's not true. Well, the organization is urging local, state and federal lawmakers to act on protecting green space for parks. And that would help families in poverty and communities with food deserts. The governor issued a plea to school superintendents to require masks in buildings. That sparked some heated responses from the people vying for his job. Hear what they had to say after the break. It is also Hispanic Heritage Month. Up next, see how Central Ohio's diverse Hispanic and Latinx population is growing. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's, it's our roads. It's, it's our safety. safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Angela Ann, courtesy of 10TV. Governor Mike DeWine is urging schools to require masks for students and staff after several districts reported high numbers of COVID cases. Everywhere, no matter where your school district is, they're red hot. Um, there's no place that you can run from the COVID. Every school district is surrounded by numbers of cases that are very, very high. DeWine says if he could issue a mask mandate, he would. But Senate Bill 22 prevents him from doing so. Uh, I don't effectively have the ability to do that anymore. Uh, the legislature passed a, a bill that says that they have the ability to come in and override a, any kind of health order that I do, and they can do it immediately. Uh, I vetoed the bill, but they passed it in, in an override. So they've made it very clear. Uh, legislature's made it very clear uh, that if we put a, a mask order on, for example, in schools, even for a temporary period of time, uh, that they'll come in and take that order off. I asked the children's hospitals to get on the phone and talk directly uh, 
with all the superintendents in the state because I want the superintendents to know exactly uh, the crisis that we are in and that our children's hospitals are seeing. DeWine's comments drew the attention of the people running for his seat. Former U.S. Representative Jim Renacci sent us a response saying in part, his comments show he likely would not stop at masks, paving a path towards vaccine mandates and other draconian measures. That was a quote. Joe Blystone is also running for governor in 2022. He tweeted this response to the governor's plea to the schools. Blystone made a direct appeal to, quote, stop with the child abuse and take your kids out of mask. Well, the day before DeWine called on superintendents to require masks, Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley held a virtual roundtable with parents about this issue. One of our top priorities must be keeping kids in school in person. And while shutting down schools or going virtual may have been necessary last year to keep our community safe, it was a disaster for our kids, especially those who are already were already at risk. And we just cannot go back to that. We must do everything we can to keep our schools open and our kids in classrooms and our kids safe. Uh, that's why weeks ago I called on Governor DeWine to issue a, a statewide mask, school mask mandate. The governor does have the power to require masks to keep our kids safe and our schools open. He must use it. But frankly, because of his lack of leadership, we're seeing school closures and quarantines all across the state not to mention kids getting sick and ending up in our intensive care units. Uh, he's putting politics, frankly, above our public health, plain and simple. And his refusal to take action is putting enormous stress on families. Uh, let me be clear, Governor DeWine could take action here. And frankly, he needs to take action. He is failing our families by choosing politics. And quite frankly, that's unacceptable leadership that we anticipate out of a governor. Whaley announced she won the endorsements of Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther, along with the mayors from Toledo, Cleveland and Akron. Now, the governor's election is still more than a year away, but we will keep you updated every step of the way. Last week marked the start of Hispanic Heritage Month. U.S. Congresswoman Joyce Beatty of Ohio marked the occasion with this tweet, saying this gives all of us the opportunity to celebrate the rich culture and vibrant diversity of America's Latino communities and recognize the immense impacts they make to improve our nation every day. Beatty, by the way, is also the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Now, all this month, 10TV is putting the spotlight on Central Ohio's diverse Hispanic and Latinx population which is about half a million people. As reporter Gabriela Garcia found out, that growth came from hard work and perseverance. Hispanics have been in Ohio and in the Midwest longer than you might think. Jose Luis Mas is an attorney and vice mayor of Worthington who spent years studying Central Ohio's Hispanic population. As early as 1779, the Spanish army engaged the British on the field here in the Midwest. And in 1781, they defeated the British at Fort St. Joseph, which is very close to 
modern-day Toledo. Later on, in 1858, Jose de Rivera Sanjurgo, a Spanish immigrant from Barcelona, bought and started vineyards on Ohio's Lake Erie Islands. Ohio's Hispanic population grew from vineyards through the early 20th century to the 1950s, when the state saw more immigrants from Mexico and Texas coming to find work picking produce in Toledo and Michigan. My mom my, we used to go up to Michigan to do cherry peeing when she was young. Juan Jose is also an attorney in central Ohio. His family settled in Ohio in the late 60s, like many others. Eventually, of course, you get tired of the migrant life, you begin to settle out. So our numbers begin to grow as individuals settled out. My mom had a, since has a third grade education, my dad a sixth grade education. So they wanted us to go to high school, finish high school somewhere. So they settled out in Toledo because the auto industry was in Toledo. Juan says families like his told relatives about opportunities they found in the Midwest. But with those opportunities stood a big barrier. Most of the Hispanics living up north didn't speak Spanish. So that was a little bit rough for us because our primary language was Spanish in Texas. Juan took on that challenge, eventually finishing law school and moving from Toledo to Columbus in the 80s. Hispanics were working on some kind of uh, janitorial jobs. And eventually as the population grew, we began to see more people opening Mexican restaurants, getting into the construction trades. And uh, so where we are now, we're, we're everywhere. According to the 2019 census, there are 467,589 Hispanic people living in Ohio. Juan and Jose say seeing that growth is great, but there's still work to do. A lot of our businesses are small, but you got to start somewhere. I think you need to know about yourself to know where you're going. It should be a source of great pride for our young people and uh, something to continue to dig into even deeper and finding out how better we can contribute to the community. In Columbus, that is my hope for the future. Gabriela Garcia, 10TV News. Gabriela, thank you. Both Jose and Juan say they want to encourage people to get to know their Hispanic neighbors and know Hispanic people are not a monolith. They come from more than 20 countries. You can look for more stories to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month right here on 10TV and online at 10TV.com. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Tracy, we'll be back next week for Face the State. That's again Angela Ann, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Each year, Ohioans are injured and killed in train car accidents that could have been avoided with properly functioning gates and flashing lights. Facts show that gates and lights together prevent more train car accidents than stop signs or crossbucks alone. How can you help? Approach all crossings with caution and report bad railroad crossings at angelsontrack.org. That's angelsontrack.org. Because bad crossings kill good drivers. Sponsored by Angels on Track, aired by OAB and this station. When times get dark, we can't see the help that's all around us. Maybe you're not sure how you'll make rent. Or you lost your job. When you don't know where to turn, let 211 be your guiding light. Our guides are ready to connect you with the help you need. 211, how can I help you? Call or visit 211.org. 211, get connected, get help. A message from United Way and the Ad Council. The thought of my sons growing up without me inspired me to quit smoking. I talked to my doctors, and then I threw away all my cigarettes, ashtrays, and lighters. I started exercising instead of smoking. Getting support from friends online kept me on track. Staying away from alcohol when I was first quitting was key. Instead of smoking after I ate, I'd get up and take a walk. 
I missed having a cigarette in my hand, so I'd hold a pen or a straw, anything. Until I knew I wouldn't give in to temptation, I spent more time with my friends who didn't smoke. I went to places that were smoke-free. I didn't stay quit the very first time I tried. I kept on trying, and I learned something each time. Do whatever it takes. No matter how many times it takes. I quit. I quit. I quit. We did it. So can you. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and CDC. ADHD. It's the child who can't pay attention or sit still in school, right? The answer may be yes. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, can be complicated, and it can last a lifetime. Up to 75% of children and adolescents with ADHD have at least one additional mental disorder that requires a comprehensive approach to treatment. Learn more at moretoadhd.com. This message brought to you in partnership with ADA, ACO, and CHAD. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me by Zoom, Dan Skinner. He is a health policy professor at Ohio University's Medical School in Dublin. He's also the author of a book called Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids in Ohio. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, Tell us uh, a little bit about first year position with the medical school, uh, what you do, and and what that uh, situation there is. Yeah, so I'm a political scientist by training, and I am a health policy professor at OU's um, osteopathic medical school at the Dublin campus. My job is to make sure that our medical students, our future physicians, aren't just um, you know informed uh, fully on the clinical side of things, but also understand the policy terrain that they are operating in and will will be entering into. Which obviously, opioids and, and addiction is a big piece of that story here in Ohio. This whole situation with opioids over the last uh, 10 years or so has really changed the game, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about the issues that we were totally steeped in in 2019 before anybody knew the words COVID or 19, uh, you know, opioid addiction and, and not just opioid addiction, addiction generally and thinking about our mental health and addiction services and supports here in Ohio it was a big issue that kind of got knocked off the radar screen in, in March of 2020. Do you feel like uh, with some of the laws that have changed that Ohio is getting a grip on it or the nation is getting a grip on it? Well, it depends what you mean by a grip. I mean, these things are complex social phenomena. You know, uh, uh, isolation is isolation, and we have a lot of it here in Ohio. Uh, the story early on, um, you know, in the early aughts of, you know, after 2000, was really around our rural areas and, and a lot of focus on, you know, Portsmouth and some of the surrounding areas down there. And it's continually morphed as policymakers and others, health professionals have tried to get their hands around it, including the medical education world that I operate in. Um, so yeah, for, for certainly um, this is a, the kind of thing where uh, the opioid addiction crisis in 2015 is different than 2021 and paying attention to it is what uh, you know, my job is and people who work in that field uh, are, are doing on a daily basis. One of the things that we heard early on was that a lot of people were getting hooked because they had had surgery or some sort of an accident, an injury, went on uh, prescription painkillers, got hooked, and then when the prescriptions end, they went to the street and got heroin. 
Is that viable? And is it still happening today like it was, you know, years ago? Well, that's the way the story was told at a certain point of the crisis. Uh, That's the story that Sam Canonis talks about in his book, Dreamland, which lots of Ohioans have read, uh, you know, of the moving from shutting down the pill mills and the prescription crisis and then the move towards illicit drugs. And, of course, fentanyl is something that we see a lot of in Ohio and have. Um, today, you know, the fentanyl is still on the, uh, on the uptick, but we also have a, a lot of uh, non-opioid um, drugs that have uh, you know, increasingly been prevalent in, in emergency rooms around the state, such as methamphetamine. You're the author of a book called Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids in Ohio. Tell us about that. Yeah, so my uh, colleague at Ohio University, Berkeley Franz, and I, um, in in 2018, uh, set out to collect stories of Ohioans. Uh, We have 22 of the 88 counties represented in there, just kind of different perspectives, snapshots of people's lived um, experiences, um, but also professional experiences with loved ones, with themselves, um, you know, and uh, the the book has um, really cast a, a, a light on a piece of it. I mean, obviously, a book can only do so much, but we have uh, accounts from law enforcement, from sports coaches, from people who are have dealt with addiction in, in one way or another in their own lives, uh, lots of families, parents, things like that, um, to just try to humanize the issue. Sometimes when we think about the, the data points, you know, these number of uh, overdoses out of 100,000 people, it's a little hard to get your head around that. But when you listen to the stories of people who have uh, gone through these experiences and still are going through them, it can really, I I think, uh, help people to understand what we're dealing with. The circumstances that some of these folks end up in, it seemingly changes their character. It might turn them into thieves when that might be the last thing in the world they would ever do. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, whenever you're... um, confronted with somebody who's in the throes of addiction, you're dealing with somebody who is sick, somebody who is in the throes of addiction. I mean, they they are not making decisions that they would want to make if they were not in that state. You know, and I think that's why, you know, law enforcement, for example, have had to really retrain and and, and re-understand how they think about this issue. Parents who thought they would never find themselves in such a situation. You know, these parents that, oh, we did everything right. And then look at us now. You know, it's, it's, it's humbling to have to take a step back and to realize that you're not special, that this, this disease can afflict anybody at any time. And um, I've met lots of people who went through a transition uh, where they, they look at it in an entirely different way than they did just even a couple of years ago. Talking with Dan Skinner, he's a health policy professor at Ohio University's Medical School in Dublin. The problem with an addiction like this is, I guess it would be similar to the way alcoholics talk about their situation, is that even if, they, if they're away from it for five or 10 years, there's always that fear or that looming factor that it could come back if they make a wrong move. Yeah, part, part of the uh, recovery process, and you know, I've talked with lots of people in recovery, um, is really disrupting your social networks, um, you know, the, the places you used to go. Uh, lots of people have to live in new places and establish new social groups because it's easy for many anyway to, to end up back there where they started. And, and really that's one of the amazing stories, you know, that comes out in the book and, and other work that I've done, which is you never know when, when one moment might be the end. Um, you know, or you never know when one moment might be the, the, the thing that sparks a successful recovery. 
So trying to understand what works and what doesn't um, and to focus our policies on the things that do work is one of the big challenges. One of the things that Ohio has embarked on is this Don't Live in Denial, Ohio, which uh, has a, a, a huge focus on communication within a family between parents and kids. Yeah, so the, the Denial Ohio campaign and also many others. I mean, the Attorney General, I'm involved with a group that's thinking about um, health professions training. And, you know, we, we needed to get rid of stigma first and foremost. Um, and stigma, not just from, um, you know, families, and but the health professionals, there was extraordinary stigma in my profession of trying to understand what it meant that somebody, um, you know, had an addiction, was dealing with an addiction. Um, Denial Ohio kind of identified one of those problems, which is that there were pretty formidable segments of our society who just kind of thought that this would never be them, that this was something that afflicted other people, and it couldn't be farther from the truth. Where do you see this going? Uh, I mean, I I think the pandemic has really kind of knocked everything out of whack, and and it seems like even statistics on just about everything about everyday life are going to be spiking one way or the other when you look back in a few years at what 2020 was like. Yeah, we're, we're a vulnerable, isolated society already. You know, even, even though we have Facebook and these things, you know, what we need is genuine human connectivity and, and um, people to reach out to, to, to feel connected. And, you know, the pandemic... <laughs> Just at a moment when Ohio thought it was getting a foothold with um, certain parts of its addiction crisis, there was COVID, and we, for many months, uh, May, uh, March through May, June, we knew it was bad. We didn't know how bad because, as you remember, as your listeners remember, everybody was just trying to get through that period, just trying to, to see what was going to be next. Um, we now know that uh, in 2020, we had the most um, opioid addiction related deaths, overdose deaths than we had in any, any year in the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, it was bad. And it's, it's still bad, but obviously this waxes and wanes with our ability to connect with people, to reach out to them. And we're really lucky that we have healthcare professionals around the state who, who do this daily, even though they're underfunded and there are big regional disparities in terms of our ability to do this. Have the counseling programs uh, helping these folks, are they getting connected again physically rather than in a virtual format these days? Yeah, more and more. I mean, yeah, some of the support groups, especially, uh, you know, like AA kind of groups and NA groups, you know, are meeting in person more and more. And that's really important to, to many people uh, with, with their addiction um, and getting back, getting people back into the offices of primary care providers of various sorts, um, you know, federally qualified health centers, community health centers around the state are doing some of the most amazing work that we almost never realize. Um, you know, people who don't have a lot of money to pay for fancy services, um, you know, our services and supports remain really mixed. I mean, if you're in rural parts of Ohio, you, you're kind of in, in trouble. Um, you know, our, the, the main supports in our state are still clustered around the urban centers. So that's something we have to do better at, and we're trying to find ways to do at. But, uh, you know, we, we know that this is far from over and that COVID has likely, um, you know, undone some of the good work we were doing already. And that rural-urban difference uh, also present with uh, even just like vaccines. I mean, there's just a, if you look at a, a map of counties around Ohio and the percentage of people that have been vaccinated, you've got 
counties like Adams down along the Ohio River where it's still only about a quarter of them. Yeah, I mean, everybody liked to talk, you know, I'm a New Yorker originally, so we all know about blue and red states, but once you look at a state like Ohio, you realize the story is really about urban and, and, um, and, and rural and looking at the disparities within the state. And all, of course, it's also black, white, right? It's the right. racial disparities. Um, you know, in our book, we talk about how LGBTQ folks, um, you know, their special needs within the area of addiction services. So, you know, we, we need to be really fine grained about this um, and that's gonna require funding. Uh, you know, <laughs> Governor DeWine at one point in, during the COVID crisis early on said, we are realizing how poorly funded our public health services are and we're paying for it. And I kind of thought, well, that's true of COVID, but we, that's, that's been true for addiction and mental health supports for a long time. So our state's gonna have to make a decision uh, whether we wanna be preventive or whether we wanna you know, keep chasing this continually. Talking with Dan Skinner, health policy professor at Ohio University's Medical School in Dublin. But when you look at health policy, uh, public health policy, public health agencies have really been uh, tested and tried over the last year and a half. I mean, look at somebody like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who never would have guessed that he would be a political figure, you know, right, right. The, the way that he's become one now, uh, completely unwittingly. It's tough these days. And, and the scrutiny and the skepticism is way up because of the, the general nature, I think, of the way people are politically anymore. Oh, sure. And, you know, of course, we were really lucky here in this state to have Dr. Amy Acton, um, you know, for the first six months or so of, of the pandemic. Right. Um, and, her, you know, her leadership was uh, celebrated nationally. The governor got extremely high marks, uh, at least for the, the early uh, aspects of the response. And of course, we have a pretty nasty politics going on here with, you know, <laughs> some people calling for us to learn lessons about how we really need to um, think more about and fund uh, better public health. And then you have other people in the state legislature, for example, who are passing legislation that, uh, you know, would seem to gut the public health uh, powers of the Department of Health. So we have a whole conversation going on here. And, uh, you know, caught in the middle are just the numbers, right, which is, um, we have real people who have real needs, and it's not clear that we can meet them as long as we're having this other kind of conversation, just about the, the political conversation that happens in this state. It's interesting that, uh, you know, that a lot of people think that the medical industry uh, bears quite a bit of responsibility for the opioid crisis, and yet that has not seemed to enter the kind of discussion about it the way COVID has with vaccines and not vaccines and where the virus came from and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there have been big lawsuits with Purdue Pharma and, other, and the other companies um, and, you know, money forthcoming to the state, uh, big questions about what we do with that money when we do get it within Ohio and where we focus it and who gets to spend it. Um, you know, but, but uh, certainly there's enough blame to go around. The, the bigger question I have, I mean, the medical industry certainly has a lot to answer to, and they always do. I mean, that's a part of the conversation. But also we're retraining medical students now and training them differently to make sure that the next generation, the students I'm training right now at Ohio University and my colleagues and I work with, um, they will be different kinds of physicians in this state. They um, think about prescriptions differently than those who came before them. Um, frankly, some of them are really scared to prescribe, right? They don't, they want to make sure that they're, what they're doing is right. The problem is, is that we don't have too many alternatives to many of these prescriptions. And, you know, no healthcare professional sees a patient to send them home in pain, right? Every, every healthcare professional wants to send their patient home 
a bit better off with some relief uh, than when they entered their office. So this is a conversation that we're only really starting to figure out how to have in a way that is actually doing right by patients and, and certainly getting you know the money from those companies as those lawsuits wind down um, could be useful as long as we don't waste it like we did with, for example, a lot of the money from the smoking lawsuits and things like that in the past. And that issue of prescribing, that really is, uh, even though it's, a, from what I understand, a, a pretty small percentage of people who do become addicted to uh, these kinds of drugs, everyone that you prescribe to is, is a potential call in the middle of the night about something that's going on. Yeah, we really just don't know. I mean, that, that's the problem is that it's very hard to tell. Um, you know, so what we need are better practices and also alternatives, right? Uh, thinking about different ways to work with pain that uh, aren't about prescribing opioids. But then again, the, the other problem is that many people just need these opioids to function, right? There's a discussion in the disability rights community about folks who have certain kinds of um, conditions that just really require something to even function. And you know, we don't want to be using too blunt of an instrument here. We wanna be able to look at patients and say, well, what is your context? What do you need? And what tools do we have? And that's where we kind of, we look at the toolbox right now and there aren't too many alternatives there, um, certainly that are legal. You know, the marijuana people think they have an answer to something. And there are a bunch of people kind of at the, on the doorstep saying, well, we have an alternative. And that has to go through a process to make sure it's safe. Talking with Dan Skinner, health policy professor at Ohio University and author of Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids in Ohio. From your book, when you talk about uh, some of these uh, situations that folks have been in, I'm sure that you had issues of, you know, families trying to fix it with tough love and, and others who did everything they could, maybe even were uh, enabling somebody. Can you give us a couple of stories on, on some of the things that you found around Ohio? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things come to mind. One, one is obviously anybody who's a parent, but not even if they're a parent, people understand that one of the hardest things you can do is to have to kick a family member out of the house. Um, and, you know, I think, Intuitively, lots of us would say, oh, God, I would never do that. I would like, well, talk to these folks and see what they were trying to work through, what they were trying to the different aspects of this that they were trying to balance to keep their other kids safe, for example. Mm -hmm. And the hard decisions they made when, you know, when there was a grind, especially, right? When this went on and on and on and, you know, relapses and, and, and the challenges of it and involvement with the, with the criminal justice system or... Um, you know, this is really hard on people that are trying to help other people and everybody has to take care of themselves at some point too. And you, you see that with a lot of people who are trying to help others that taking care of yourself and protecting yourself is also an important piece. We also learned, I mean, and, and people do know from the opioid crisis, I think by now that there, there's a missing generation. There's a lot of incarcerated people and there are a lot of dead people. Um, and, you know, uh, grandparents raising their grandkids, kind of relearning parenting again, um, stigma against kids being raised by grandparents in certain counties around here in Ohio. We've heard those stories. You know, any number of um, sort of ancillary thing, you know, conditions have arisen out of this core thing, which is the, the desperation of addiction. You know, you mentioned the deaths and, and uh, the coronavirus has claimed more than 20,000 in Ohio. 7,000 of those were living in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And I would think in, in the last few years that 
the drug overdose death total is probably around 20,000 over the last six, eight years in Ohio. Yeah, so we had 5,000 in 2020, according to right. official numbers, uh, you know, and that's obviously, you know, just a couple years of that and, you, and you're at the same level. So, yeah, and, and like you can, you can look at any kind of health issue in Ohio and uh, we don't rank well in many of them. You know, look at um, you know, diabetes, for example, or, or something like that. So we have a lot of reckoning to do with how we think about health, how we think about public health, um, the kind of where we put our money in general. And, and COVID has raised a bunch of those issues for us once again. And again, as I mentioned, has also reminded us that even when we make progress, for example, our infant mortality rate is, is slightly better, right, this year, but the disparities between white and black and brown are, are intensifying in many cases. So. We need to look at this from a bunch of different uh, perspectives each time and make sure we don't get kind of too high on ourselves when we think, you know, oh, we've got this or we've done something so good. Uh, we, we need to keep our head to the, to the ground. Where do you think the, the biggest exit from it lies? Is it, is it cutting off the supply uh, at the borders or is it behavioral uh, changes? You know, what is it? Well, a couple things. I mean, you know, people like me who work in health policy and public health, you know, I mean, I advocate harm reduction, as it's called, which is, you know, we need to make sure we can help people. We need to save lives. So getting naloxone to every corner of our state is still a priority. Making sure that we can revive people when they're in an overdose so that they have a chance to live. It's the, it's the most basic thing we can do. Um, at the same time, from a policy perspective, certainly cutting off the supply is, is, is important. But, you know, supply and demand um, will, you know, Americans love to talk about capitalism. Supply and demand, you know, seem to always win. So we need to make sure that we are helping people first and foremost. We are reducing the isolation and the connectivity in people's lives, getting people into treatment wherever they live in whatever way they want to live. So, for example... A lot of our support systems in Ohio are faith-based. Well, what about people who, for whom faith is, is not something that is a, is a part of their life? We need to make sure that we have resources for them too. Right. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we need to come at it from many different perspectives, and there's no kind of spigot you can turn off on this. Talking with Dan Skinner, health policy professor at Ohio University's Medical School in Dublin, and he's also the author of Not Far From Me, Stories of Opioids in Ohio. Uh, anything else you'd like to add, Dan? No, just that, you know, uh, I, well, I, I guess, yes, which is um, where we were in, in 2019 before COVID. Um, you know, we have only started to understand the effects of what COVID has done to other issues that uh, we were already wrestling with. And it's just really important for us to regain our focus. We have to be willing to do multiple things at once. But the big master frame here is just supporting and funding public health. Our public health professionals have been true heroes through COVID, but we've also learned that we, if, we, if we want this, the outcomes we want, then we need to make sure we actually put the pieces in place, whether it's financial or other. Any online sources you want to cite either for your book or for just general information? Well, of course, I would love it if people would read the book that Berkeley and I co-edited. Like, I'm, I'm a huge fan of our local newspapers, frankly. Um, the Columbus Dispatch is, is a, has wonderful beat writers that are, are focusing on this issue. People should subscribe to their local papers. Um, and, you know, really, I have a podcast, too, which is Prognosis Ohio. We talk about these issues quite often. 
we just need the conversations to come out. We need that's how you get rid of the stigma. That's how you bring more people out of the woodwork so they can talk about the needs that they have in their communities. And um, I, I think that you know if you just pay attention to local newspapers and poke around a little bit, um, there's more than enough being talked about out there for everybody. And good information. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Dave. You have a great day. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.